Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock Jock, Steve Price. I don't like Shock Jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Andrew Bolt has the loudest media voice, you could argue, in all of Australia. Newspaper columns in the nation's biggest selling papers, a nightly television program on Foxtel and a widely popular blog. A genuine conservative voice who once worked for the Labor Party. Andrew is fearless, well-researched, and he's not afraid to take on causes others run away from. His work on the case that eventually saw Cardinal George Pell win a court appeal and walk from jail took a particular toll. He's had death threats, been physically attacked in the street, but still Andrew Bolt doesn't take that backward step. He's our guest on this episode of On The Record. Yes, we must defend victims of child sexual abuse, but we cannot treat every improbable allegation as true and jail innocent people to make ourselves seem more compassionate and more moral. That is not more moral. It is unjust. Well, Talkback Radio is, I think, the, the ultimate social media. It's, it's live and it's raw. You've got callers unedited from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds, eager to debate the issues, especially when it comes to politics. And often with views where you say to yourself, gee, why didn't I think of that? Now, look, I've done Talkback Radio for 25 years. I've produced it for longer than that, and I still love it. It's Steve Price here with the latest edition of On The Record, where we get behind the mask of some of Australia's biggest media names. Now, this episode features, without exaggeration, one of the most widely listened to, read and watched media figures in Australia. Now, Andrew Bolt and I did a nightly talkback hour nationally for five or six years. We were the most downloaded podcast on our radio network. We were listened to from Cairns in the far north of Australia to Western Victoria, and we had a unique opportunity, I think, with that program to tap in to the mood of Australia. It was a, an important hour of radio. I still miss it. But Andrew Bolt's brand is so much more than that. Newspaper columns, a nightly TV show, a blog, and I'm sure if he had time, podcasts of his own. We first met in a coffee shop in Melbourne when I went to hire him to come and work at the newspaper I was working on at the time, the Melbourne Herald. Andrew Bolt joins us for On The Record. How are you? Good, mate. I'm still puzzling about my mask, though. Um trying to think, uh, have I got a mask and what's going to happen when we go behind it? <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, we've all got masks though now, Andrew. <laughs> you can't go outside oh. without one on. Oh, isn't that the case? I mean, I feel so sorry for my kids, as I often tell them, that, uh, particularly my youngest, uh, who uh, has got a sort of media career in front of him. And, you know, they're in an era now where you, you, you go hide your views. Uh, you've got to be super, super, super careful. Um, I don't know. Or, or do you? Do you? Maybe you should just go and, you know, just let it all hang out. But uh, I think it's turning slightly. I think the generation between us, and you're younger than me, but us and our children are the ones that are so uh, unwilling to express honest views. I think our children, and I talk about a generation of, say, uh, those under the age of 25 uh, are a little bit more willing these days to say no I don't I don't agree with that I don't I don't believe that I have to think like that I'm going to tell you what I think no I'm not so sure about that they'll do that when when it's a sort of safe view but I think this whole generations of kids now for instance that have gone through uh, the schooling system 
um, knowing that the way to get a good mark in in the you know in in, in English and where you've got political opinions, politics, etc., is to regurgitate the the teacher's opinion rather than give your own. I think that's really sad. It's an exercise in cynicism. Yeah, ironically, herd mentality, which is what we say we can't have with COVID. Well, that's true. I mean, for, for a lot of kids, that is indeed, you're right. You know, they've just been taught to the uh, the beauty of being uh, part, part of the sheep. But for the smarter, more independent-minded, they're also being taught that you just keep it to yourself, uh, just give them back what they want. It's a, they're getting an insight into how opinion is manufactured by by those in power. There's been a real change, I think, over the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years. There's always, obviously, teachers want people to agree with them. But I thought there was more respect for mavericks and thinking outside the square before than there is now. Now, you know, words are hand grenades. I had a... Um I had a report card that my mother dug up from when I was in primary school where it said Stephen uh, would do a lot better if he, he minded his own business rather than everybody else's. <laughs> very very prescient observation, I think. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. I mean, isn't that exactly what uh, you and I are in, the business, uh, journalists not minding their own business? I <laughs> journalists mind their own business. What on earth would we have to tell anyone about? I mean, we'd be out of business. It'd be very boring. Can you remember the coffee shop where we met to have that chat about you coming to work? Uh, I think it was near the Herald Sun, wasn't it? That one uh, it was the top of uh, top of Burke Street. It was Pellegrini's. You and I went to a Melbourne institution. I think. Don't think we ate. We just had coffee. And I can't remember uh, why you decided you wanted to shift from the left-leaning age to come to the very middle of the road, <laughs> Melbourne Herald. <laughs> you know what I think it was? Uh, the thing about being wanted. I think that's really what it is. You know, someone just at the age was just uh, tootling around and was doing all right, not, nothing spectacular, and just someone else wanting me somewhere else. You think, oh, well, that's that's nice. It's nice to be wanted. So, um and then I don't I feel awful about saying no to anyone, so I went. Ironically, uh, the person whose idea it was was one of the best-known media names in Melbourne, and that's Neil Mitchell. He was editor of the paper at the time, and the editor-in-chief was the very, uh, very, very much Mr. Les Carline. Those two said, why don't we hire this young bloke, Andrew Bolt, and you need to go and do it. That's how it happened. Well, there you go. Do you think uh, Neil regrets that? I'm not Probably. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Isn't it strange? Your career looking, you know, depends which way you look at it. When you start off, all these possibilities are wild. You've got no idea where you're going. And then when you finally got to where you were going, you look back and you think there's an inevitability. You know, everything seems, you know, I was destined to be here. It's not that really at all. I think somewhere in the middle there. So much of careers is just plain luck. Luck and accident. And then if you've got luck on your side, uh, you are a very lucky person. I mean, I think we hired you to write about industrial relations, if my memory serves me correctly. Did we then send you to <laughs> Trades Hall in Ligon Street to base yourself there? And imagine if you turned up there today. Oh, oh, well, forget about today. Back then, <laughs> um, I went to Trades Hall and... I'd already been doing, 
whatever it was, my, my, my reputation preceded me. And Martin Ferguson was then uh, president of the ACTU. And he took me aside and he said, you know that one of your colleagues, my deputy, I think it was then, at Trades Hall, was going around saying to union leaders, don't talk to Andrew Bolt, he's a fascist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. And he said, "Uh, don't worry, I I will keep talking to you because I treat people as I find them. And uh, I've had such respect for Martin Ferguson Ever since, I mean, most people probably forgotten who he is, but he became a minister, um, a very good minister, resources minister, and uh, that was wonderful. But that's what it was like then. I mean, not all the lefties were in the trade union. Just shows you. <laughs> were also in your own paper. Just shows you not much changes where you've got uh, colleagues undermining you for your views. I mean, that's quite an incredible story. I mean, on Martin Ferguson, and you and I interviewed him plenty of times on radio. He's a He's an extraordinary bloke, and I know he won't mind me telling this story, but he turned up one night when I was a producer at 3AW, uh, unannounced, and asked for me at the front desk and leaked to us the most extraordinary story. I won't go into the detail of what it was, (laughs) but he wanted it to get out there, and he knew much of the rest of the media wouldn't do it. So he came and personally, face-to-face, said, hey, I've got a story for you guys. Here it is. Nah, he, he was a good bloke. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of people um, just uh, consuming the media don't sort of realise that in politics and in the union movement and all that, well, not so much now in the union movement, but certainly, certainly back then, it's not blue team, red team so much that people on both sides of that supposed divide, they're playing a game, some of them, or they're trying to make the best of the, the the situation in their own side. There's actually a polarity of views on both sides. And sometimes there are people, like as a conservative, you'll find people in Labor who very much share your views more than do some people in the liberal side. And in the union movement too, particularly back then, there were a lot of people who were of the, of the right who were union leaders. I mean, when I first got in, there were people like Laurie Short and all that who made his name. Uh, fighting communism. Uh, now it's, of course, got a far, far more uh, everything. It's got far more politicised. People are far more in their teams. It's far more ideological. It's, uh, you know, hatred's real. You know, got to destroy people on both sides. But behind the scenes, we still know there are people that share your views that uh, readers and, or listeners or viewers might not expect. Back then, and we're talking mid to late 80s, I mean, there was also that religious divide, wasn't there? I mean, in Victoria in particular, there was the Catholic right. That's who you're talking about. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, the Catholic right in the union movement was, was strong, and that obviously, uh, you know, being Catholic informed their anti um, communism because uh, that's not just because Catholicism is another tribe but because if you're Christian you sort of uh, know that uh, the machine, you know, you don't sacrifice people for the machine. Uh, human life is, is too important. You don't you don't uh, break, you know, make an omelette by breaking eggs if those eggs happen to be human beings and uh, that's why communi- you know, Christians were against communists they were against fascists, they were against Hitler against all that sort of ideology. It's only a pity that uh, more Christians don't see through the green ideology now as well, because that's just you know the same sort of stuff. 
in a different uh, in, in different guise. But you know, there are also people who are just genuinely pro individuals rather than pro tyranny. Back, um, back then, when we hired you to uh, to write about industrial relations, I mean, am I sort of looking at this through rose coloured glasses? But were newspapers then was there a, a much more clearly defi- defined difference between news reporting and opinion? Uh, you know, I I ask myself that too, and I. I really don't know. I suspect there was, but on the other hand, I'd have to say, maybe I just didn't know enough to know, to judge that I was being spun, you know? And and now it's a little easier to work out that uh, people are just trying to push a line rather than uh, just treat the facts because we've got something called the internet and people can sometimes check the source documents for themselves. They don't have to rely or one or two media voices to say, oh, this is, you know, this is the truth about, you know, name something. This is the truth about China. You can go into the internet and find the truth about China yourself if you care to look and know where to look. I mean, obviously, other people misuse it to go all sorts of wild conspiracy theories. But uh, I think we're probably able now to suss, to suss out the propaganda more. You say that, you know, don't forget, don't forget, you know, back when Stalin was getting in power, this bloke won a uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times, I think it was, for covering uh, how wonderful things were going in Russia and uh, how, you know, it was a beautiful <laughs> land of plenty while millions were uh, starving and, and, and many people starving to death in Ukraine, for instance. You know? yeah, and it's people a, didn't know. It's an excellent point because, I mean, Back when we're talking, we're getting to sound like you know we're old and out of date. We're not. We're both still contemporaries. No, but the lessons are very, very important for right now. But if we wanted to work out, you know, what uh, the the head of the the Builders Labor's Federation was doing four years prior to when we were writing about them, you had to go down to the the newspaper library at head office and go trawl your yep. way back through, you know, past articles written about that individual. These days, you just go mm-hmm. onto Google. Well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I remember having to do, you know, old papers uh, go through scrolls and microfiche and all that. You know, that, that's pathetic. Now you just start with a few search words. So there's no excuse for not being better informed. Uh, and it's true. But, you know, the way people used to talk, you know, we had we had intellectuals uh, telling us that uh, Pol Pot was doing all right, you know, and that we had people running around saying, uh, oh, those those uh, people fleeing from Cambodia that say there's a genocide going on, they're just making it up. You know, yeah. they're just anti-communist rat bags. I don't know that you could get away with that kind of stuff anymore. You know, not quite so easily as then. And, and, but the thing is, you know, on the other hand, you know, you're getting a, a lot of cynicism as a result. But it, it, it's a liberating. You have a look at the uh, all this stuff now about global warming. You know, there's no excuse for people falling for this rubbish that uh, the planet is headed for catastrophe and blah, 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 because you can look up a lot of the material for yourself. It's right out there. You know, so when you get some fool, some Al Gore running around saying, you know, cyclones are getting worse, hurricanes are getting worse, you can just go to the Bureau of Meteorology website and look up the cyclone page and you'll see, you know, that Australia's had fewer cyclones, not more. You can look up the rainfall page. It's right there. There's no excuse. Not that any journalists seem to do it, 
but you can look up the rainfall gauge and you will see that rainfall over Australia over the last half has increased, that makes not our, decreased. That makes Al Gore a very smart man because I presume at some point he sat down and thought, I can make a lot of money out of this. He has. That's right. Someone, uh, so he's, he's gone, okay, if I can sell this story and I can yeah. be the first one to sell it, I'm going to cash in. Scare sell, scare sell. I mean, you've just got to go back through history. You say, you know, oh, would it sound like old farts or whatever it was. But the point is, history informs you of tricks that have been, there's nothing new. The same trick type of trickster always comes up. Humans are built the same way. They react the same way. They panic. They, you know, they fall for miracle cures and all that. You've just got to realize there are shysters. There always have been and always will be. And in some ways, uh, humanity's not progressing. You know, we're, we're still as vulnerable as we are. I mean, you look at the fear with this, um, with this uh, current epidemic, this, this pandemic, you know, the coronavirus. You know, in some ways, it's not new how people are reacting, what kind of miracle cures and what kind of certainties they want, scapegoats they choose, you know. Isn't it amazing? A, a few months ago, uh, we, I saw news reports like on Channel 9 and Channel 7 uh, whacking people for wearing face masks, the selfishness of them. You know, the face masks were useless. And by the way, they, they were being, t- we didn't have many and the frontline workers who really needed them. You know, you couldn't use a face mask. It was shocking. And, you know, they didn't work and all this kind of stuff. Now, if you don't wear a face mask, you're lucky to get your face plastered all over the papers as a, as a menace to society. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. This herd mentality at the moment. Yeah, it is. Let's rip your COVID mask off and go back a bit. Why, how did your family end up in Australia? Oh, I think they were, you know, Europe wasn't a great place to be in the 50s. Uh, still, you know, slowly coming out of World War II deprivations and all that. But more, I think my parents were just uh, fleeing Holland, personal disappointments or whatever, resentments, uh, Australia, land of opportunity, the way people we're selling Australia back there. It was incredible. It's so cheap to go. So it looked like, let's build a new future. They walked into a travel agency in Amsterdam and there's a beautiful picture of a beach and people in swimmers (laughs) going, come and live here. No, but back then, back then, the Department of Immigration, or whatever it was called, I think it was called back then, uh, was sending around people to, uh, you know, countries they liked, like Holland, and saying, come, you know, they were giving talks, come to Australia, come to Australia. And sure. And it was a different place to come to, you know. Back then, you know, when my parents landed in Adelaide. In what year? There were jobs for anyone. There were jobs for anyone. You remember Elizabeth, the satellite city there. Yep. Was being built to house all these immigrants. There were factories. You didn't even have to have much of a degree. You didn't have to have much of an education. And my father was a trained teacher, but, you know, you could be a labourer. There would be a job in Australia for you, whereas now, if you don't have an expertise, you're luckily end up at the bottom of the pile. It's not this sort of blue-collar jobs, but then, and, you know, you had the Premier proud to put his name on the side of a coal-fired power station. Now, of course, every coal-fired power station in South Australia has been blown up yeah. and power as, prices through the roof. As Boy, you and I discovered the night that they blew that up. But, I mean, it it still takes a, a level of bravery to move from one side of the world to the other. I mean, yeah, it, you know, it, sure. imagine you yourself today suddenly thinking, well, Australia's no good anymore. I need to get out of here and 
uh, they're telling me that uh, Sweden's a good place to go and live. I'm going to pack up my whole family and go there. I mean, that decision's massive. Uh, well, I think it is much more uh, it's easy now than it was then. When my parents came over here, and look, it, same is true for any immigrants in the 50s and in the 60s, you know. Uh, you were really saying goodbye to your family. My mother never went back to Holland before she died. Mm. My father only went back a few, the first time many years later. A, travel was much more expensive. B, making a phone call was so expensive. You had to book it, and then when it came through, you're talking three-minute blocks. You talked as fast as you could because it was something so expensive you could only afford this thing maybe once a, a month, once in two months, once in six months. Uh, you didn't have the internet, nothing like that, nothing. Today, just this morning, don't tell my daughter, she's overseas. I look up, find my phone, and know exactly where she is. Phone <laughs> calls on Viber cost nothing. We ring almost every day. She talks for an hour. Oh, she can talk. I mean, this, this is it's nothing the same. Nothing the same. Back then, you were leaving. It was tears at the airport. Will I ever see my children again? And it was the land of opportunity. Everyone had a job. But your dad had training. He was a school teacher, which led you on some pretty extraordinary adventures. For those listening to On The Record, the podcast, who not listen to our radio show, you, of course, spent time in Darwin and other parts of the Northern Territory and then famously in remote South Australia. That must have had some influence on the adult that you've become working in places, uh, living in places like that? Uh, I think it has, but I don't know whether, you know, how much of nature, how much is nurture. I've always been a pretty uh, solitary kind of, but you know, you know, I'm not a socialist, socialist or a socialite or I'm not very social. As you <laughs> Either of well those not. things, yes. Anything with the word social in it, I'm not. <laughs> Anything with the word social in it. So, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I had good friends in Darwin as a kid, and then suddenly I'm in the Nullarbor plane, and there's only one other person in my year seven class. The only one in my year six class is my brother. You know, it's, it's like that. Um, and then moving again to another country town, and then moving again to another country town. and um, It left me with uh, no childhood friends like that, because I kept shifting all the time and uh, no long time childhood friends and I envy that people that do I've seen my my children my wife is very keen that we stayed in the same spot they've got friends they know from school and have kept all through the years and that's not the same with me but how much of that is my nature as well I so did it turn you into a bit of a loner do you think uh yeah but Funnily enough, you know, that's not good socially, I know that. But funnily enough, I think it's been helpful career-wise because it gives you less fear. I just figure, well, look, I've got no friends to lose. I can just say what I damn well like. Um, and That's interesting. So uh, that's actually helped me. That's interesting. I mean, because you, you and I both know in the positions that we've been in, uh, there are times when you have to say and write things about people you like and have yes. respect for, but mm-hmm. the the need to to say it uh, overwhelms the reluctance to do it because of the hurt you, you might cause. Are so right. Who have you burned that way? Well, I've seen people in public that I've written and talked about, and I've had to oh, say hello. I mean, it, even that is, is awkward. I mean, most politicians get it because they realise that 
they're in a in a business where cri- criticism of their of their of the way they go about their, their politics requires mm. people that know them to criticise them. But you know, even sports. Yeah, people, but even then, when they know what you have to do, yeah, it's not to say they. It, it, it makes it much easier on them. I mean, you know, it's tough, isn't it? But I think you I and remember, I, are very, you and I, are very honest people, though, and I, I would never say or write something about somebody that I didn't genuinely believe. And I would always do it with the view that if I came across that person, I could argue why I'd done it. Yeah, look, I'd like to think I'm the same. But on the other hand, I also know how hard it is to be critical of someone you really like. And it just makes me wonder why more politicians, instead of uh, thinking, you know, well, they're conservative, I'm on the left, I'm not even going to cross the road, you know, I'll never say hello to them. They should just reach out because it is harder. Many journalists, it is harder to criticize someone you like. It just is. Um, and I remember, I think it was on our show, you know, remember when uh, Tony Abbott, who I really like, you know, a lot of respect for, and he gave that knighthood to Prince Philip. You remember that? Yes. And I said, I think it was on our show, that it was catastrophically stupid. Move. <laughs> you know, and you did. despite him being a good friend of mine, I said this is And knowing that he was probably listening. <laughs> I know, knowing he was in trouble. And lo and behold, the ABC National News ran as the top item. You know, to, <laughs> even Andrew Bowl thinks it's catastrophic, stupid. So, you know, one of Andrew, Tony Evans closest to um, all that kind of stuff. And I knew it was really, so, and I found it really, but in the end, you, you know, what's your value? The people paying you, paying good money for your newspaper or whatever. They're asking you to tell them what you really think and to level with them. And if you're going to give them the spin, if you're just going to peddle propaganda for your mates, you're useless to them. You're not earning your keep. You're, you're breaking faith. You're breaking trust, and you owe it to them. And that's how I sort of feel. I mean, I, I know it all sounds noble, and I'm sure I fall short of that principle now and then, but that's the way it is. People who know me but don't know you very well, the most common question I get about Andrew Bolt and when people know that I'm a friend of yours, they say to me almost out of the corner of their mouth, does he really believe this conservative <laughs> stuff that he goes on with? Is, it, is he just putting this this all on so that he can make a good income for him and his family? I mean, surely he doesn't really believe all this stuff. Uh, I then have my normal response, which is uh, – no, Andrew uh, is very genuine about his views. He thinks deeply about them and expresses them uh, without fear or favour. It's funny that people have that doubt, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's a bit offensive. I bet they don't say it to you. You're a liar. You know, you're just lying for money. But they don't say it to your face, I'm sure. Uh, a couple of times in the past, not that often really. I mean, there was one guy on a website. Yeah, I launched this idiot's book. And, uh, yeah, a couple of people jumped on me outside from Antifa and we had a fist fight. Um, so I thought he might credit me a bit more. He said, about a column I wrote the other day, he said, um, uh, was Andrew Bolt got at? You know, I said, because I'd written about Daniel Andrews, I vehemently disagree with a lot of stuff he's doing as Premier Victoria, this uh, coronavirus. But on the other hand, you've got to respect him. I've got to respect all our leaders. I've seen them doing, in their view, their level best and working hard and fronting up and not hiding, not feeling ill, seeming you know, whatever. This is a tough time, our leaders, yeah? So I wrote something like that. 
And the guy said, was Andrew Bock got at? Like, someone must have whispered to me, threatened me, a boss or something. And I thought, you donkey. And I actually sent him a stinker. Not the, you know. I said, I thought, you donkey. You really think, after all I've gone through, after all that I've put myself out there, that I'm the kind of guy that someone says, I want you to change your mind, and I'll do that just because I'm ordered to? Really? Seriously? Now, I might be wrong. And sometimes I change my mind. You know, I always feel I have to give them a reason for it. Sometimes when I'm wrong, and always when I'm wrong, I apologize. I'm not perfect. But to think that I'm sitting there writing what I don't believe, I mean, really? What? Who would do that? I mean, I'm sure some people do, frankly. But Look, I've seen you, you agonise over columns. I know how much uh, blood and sweat you put into it. Was there any one individual in newspapers who said to you, pulled you aside one day and said, Andrew, I think you need to concentrate on writing opinion rather than being uh, a general reporter? No, I just realised it myself. You know, I just realised it myself. I realised that when I was reporting, I was, uh, A, I don't like going out to interview people. Uh, again, not social. <laughs> Knocking on the door and saying, um, I'm sorry, we heard that your uh, family lost their child overnight. Can we have a picture? Yeah, that sort of stuff. Can I just confess something to you, mate? Mm-hmm. I think it was you. No, it might have been the age. I'm trying to think when it was. Probably was to you. No, it would have been at the age. I had to do a door knock. Uh, someone, family, uh, someone in their family had died. And I didn't. Uh, I think it's the only time I lied to my bosses. Uh, I said they weren't at home or something. I can't remember what I said, but I just couldn't do it. And I know that's not right. I mean, you've got to do the job, and it's interesting how many families actually welcome the opportunity to say something, to let the world know about someone who's died so their death wasn't for nothing, so they weren't for nothing, they accounted for something. But I just couldn't do it. And I just... In the end, I just thought, look, I'd rather give people my opinion based on the evidence that I've got rather than chase someone else, including a lot of um, idiots, uh, to tell the world their opinion. Um, yeah, look, I think the last time I... made the conscious decision myself. Last time I did it uh, was awful circumstances where a, a young boy it was on a school camp. I can remember this as if it was yesterday. This was in South Australia in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. The young fellow was on a school camp. Uh, one of his uh, classmates... Uh, skylarking around, threw a brick at him, hit him in the head. The young fellow was basically dead on the spot and I was sent to the mother's house to get a photograph of this boy for the newspaper. I knocked on the door. Another child let myself and the photographer in and the the mother was basically laying in her bedroom weeping and I was supposed to go and ask her for a photograph of her dead child. I said to the photographer, let's get out of here, turned on our heel, walked away. Um, and went back to the office and said, look, there's just no way that that was going to happen. Sorry, it's not going to happen. So you did it in a more ethical way. I'm mean, still ashamed of what, how I treated it. But, but, yeah, look, it is it is tough. But then I hear other examples, you know. My my wife was a chief police reporter and had to do these things too. A very good one. She, she was. has other anecdotes of how, um, you know, families, they just wanted to tell the world about someone they'd lost. You know, and you can you can sense that you you don't want someone to die forgotten. That's and true. 
So I don't know. I don't it's know whether just that's tough. just us uh, rationalising or whether that's right, but it probably is right. No, it's, no, it's not me because, as I say, you know, I, I couldn't do it. I'm just saying from other people's experiences, different. We're talking um, to Andrew Bolt. This is on the record, the podcast. Let's talk about more about you. Um, you you establish yourself as uh, a very credible, opinionated uh, columnist. You end up on television now. Am I right that the insiders on the ABC was where you really got your first blooded on television? Is that where you really started on TV? Oh, that's where I really. I mean, there was one incident way before. Um, David Johnson, which was such a learning thing for me. I think it was in uh, that was when I was working at the Herald, the Herald, and uh, I'd been asked, I'd done something about Senator John Button and the industry minister. I was asked on to meet the press as one of the panelists, and I was told, uh, I think it was Johnson or maybe it was someone else. Um, they said we're going to interview John Button, and when I give you the signal. You know, just move my hand, jump in and ask him this question, this tough question. And he gave a signal and I froze. Or I didn't want to, or I felt embarrassed asking him a tough question on air. I felt unsure of myself. The moment passed. I wasn't very good. And I didn't get on TV again for another <laughs> decade or something. I thought I was no good at it. No good at it. And then I got on the insiders and I used to rehearse what I was going to say. It was always, you know, three against one. Uh, rehearsed like crazy and found myself like dissociated. I'd hear my voice on set like uh, I was a stranger. I'd hear on delay, you know, in my own ears. It's just really weird. But yeah, after 10 years, um, I'd had enough experience to start my own show. So when did you get confident enough on the insiders not to rehearse and just go in there knowing that you were – because the thing about Andrew Bolt that, that I discovered working with you for so long – was that when you mount an argument, you are armed with the facts and people hate that because whether it's a talkback caller or whether it's Barry Cassidy on the insiders or one of the other people lined up to argue with you, uh, they can't stand it when you actually argue factually back to them. Yeah, well, that means I always have to prepare a lot because um, you get a lot of abuse, obviously, and that's usually if, if someone comes with an argument, they, they turn to abuse. So you know, you're a racist, you're a this, you're a that. And it's quite nasty. And I found that very difficult to start with. Um, but it just, yeah, after a while, you, you, you get more familiar with the topics that you're, you, you're doing. And you also get to appreciate that some, a lot of people in the media business are not that smart. Um, you can relax a little bit. And you also learn the tricks, you know, how to turn the argument your way, um, how to frame it how to call people out, which I thought was really, a lot of politicians should do this. You know, if someone's being really a, a, a pig to you on air, call it out. Uh, let the viewers know, you know. Yes. Just say. Or if they're making false assumptions, call out those false assumptions. Or if you're getting a pack attack. On the ABC, on the insiders, um, it was always Barry Cassidy, who's of the left, describing more of the left now, but you know, still of the left back then and two guests, and they were always hostile. And that, he always put the two guests on the couch, So, and me on a little bucket seat to the right of the screen, you know, on my own. <laughs> and I had the feeling that was quite deliberate. The conservatives always got to sit on their own, so it looked like you were an outsider. That was the thing. 
But I started taught saying the Couch Collective on air, you know, letting people know that this was a collectivist mindset, which really offended the people on the couch. They thought they were individualists striving for the truth. They're free thinkers, and here I was saying they're just the collective, which they were. And after much more of that, you know, categories scrambled up and I got to sit on the couch so I couldn't say that anymore. But, you know, you learn tricks like that. You get quite confident after a while and, you know, you just know how the game is played. It's just like anything, you know. I'm interested. After 100 games knows how to fake a few things that he didn't when he was a rookie. I'm interested. What was it like pre and post show then if it was always Barry and the other two? Was there any small talk and chat? Yeah, no, always awkward. Like with insiders. Um, I mean, I, I went on Q&A it. one night. My God, what that was oh, like no, no. pre and post event was oh, unbelievable. Oh, no, Q&A's worse. Oh, 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 absolutely. With Q&A, you're standing there talking to the pop plant. You know, you are the outside. Everyone, and particularly the people that loathe you, make a big fuss about, you know, greeting others, hail fellow, well met, to make sure you know that you you know you are the trash. You are the the uh, chewing gum on the sole of the foot. I know that absolutely. But in, out, insiders, I was much more a regular guest, so that was harder to do. And they liked pairing me with um, uh, David Ma, who oh, yes. you know, very you know, the huffster. <laughs> you know, this is disgraceful. You know that kind of stuff. Um, so David and I. Uh, to avoid nasty scenes, we just talk opera. <laughs> well, that's funny. That's the default laugh, position, no, 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 isn't it? No, no, no. I mean, that's no, the, very much the default no, position. No, when we you... would at least talk about opera. Correct. And, I, you know, when I appear with somebody that I don't necessarily have a strong relationship with in, and, and our political views differ, we might talk AFL rather than uh, yeah. rather than anything else. Um, am it's I right? Just, you know, I, I, I get that and I always like – I'm always – in favour of being civil. I'm only not civil when someone's being uncivil to me. Then, then you know, they want to choose those weapons. Uh, if they want to pick up a knife, I'll pick up a knife. But um, Like the time in Ligon Street when a bloke tried to punch you in the head. Yeah, well, look, you know, if, if someone attacks me, uh, well, if, if that's how it goes, then it's on. You're not going to um, – I'm not going to sit there and be someone's punching bag. But, but on the whole, I believe in being civil. But, you know, when you get someone who – Clearly, you know, they've been calling you a racist or whatever. I'm not going to talk AFL football with them. I'm not going to be able to, because basically I think they're being hypocrites. If I actually came across someone that I thought was a racist, I would not make nice to them. Um, why, would you, why would you be civil to someone that you think is an absolute disgusting racist? Now, please don't take this as an invitation to attack me if you think I'm a racist, but, you know, I just thought they were hypocrites. Um if you believe that of someone, then okay. So let's not pretend uh, we're friends. So Channel 10 gave you the Bolt report. Can you remember the first time you did that solo? Oh, my God, it was awful. It was so awful. I was so nervous, Steve. I don't know about you. I would say to uh, Sally, you know, my wife, you know, Steve always, uh, Amy Amy always seems, uh, you know, Confident, all that kind of stuff. You've always been a confident guy. I don't know whether it's a mask or something. I was so bloody nervous, Steve. And it's only a once a week show on a Sunday. For the first few weeks, I had to take sleeping tablets from the Monday because I was sitting there fretting, rehearsing everything that could go wrong, 
the first year, I would get um, a swallowing problem. I'd obsess about the fact that I'd need to swallow. So I would have to schedule in my talk, you know, my opening editorial, because that's when it would hit, uh, a, a grab, you know, a piece of footage, a grab every 30 seconds so that by the time I reached that, I could swallow. I wouldn't be having to swallow mid-sentence. Isn't that bizarre? No, I can Isn't understand exactly how, how that would be. So you, you put in a little grab so you could have a gulp of water. I mean... Exactly. Yeah, no, but I think, I think that, you know, I'd have something in the back of my throat, I'd need to swallow. So it was just so weird. And now, you know, the other day I caught myself yawning uh, a, a couple of seconds before air. <laughs> well, you are so confident now on your Sky Show. To his credit, am I right that the legendary news executive, Peter Meekham, was the one who convinced you to do the Bolt Report and tried to talk you out of leaving? Um, I don't know. I think it was... Well, I'm trying to think. No, it was no, it was. Um, I had lots of a, a bit to do with Peter Meek, and I respect him enormously. He's a very nice guy. I like him a lot. He's got, a, you know, tremendous guy. But um, no, it was uh, Lachlan Murdoch. So um, uh, he, he wanted it. Well, he so, was running ten at the time, wasn't he? Well, he actually yeah, owned yeah. most of it. Yeah, he had a. Um, they were hoping to get full ownership of it, and, but I just thought they never followed through uh, with with. Ten, you know, they wanted to make an alternative uh, to the mainstream media because that's the only way that I thought ten could prosper. Uh, because whatever the ABC was doing, what was the point of a commercial doing it with ad breaks? You know, and, and I think that's where ten has been stuck. Um, so they did my show as a start, but on a Sunday, once a week um, in the morning, I don't really think that was going to be a long-term proposition. The whole station needed to change, and it didn't. Uh, but it's, interestingly enough, you saw the same wrestling with Sky News, you know. Uh, when I say with Sky News, it was only me, Paul Murray, sort of. It's got more firm in his view since. Mm. But we were the conservatives. We were the ones that rated, but the ones they marketed were the shows that didn't rate because they didn't want to offend anyone. So, you know, we were just 24-hour news. Well, it wasn't the news 24 hours they read. It was the conservative opinion. And since then, Sky News has gone whole, whole. And, of course, it's all the conservative shows that rate really well. We've, I don't know what we've done. You know, I think I've tripled or quadrupled my audience over the years. But you've got Alan Jones and Peter Credlin and uh, Chris Kenny and, and you've got the outsiders, Rowan Dean and Rita Panahi and all that. They're just going, whoop. Let's go the whole – and it works. Well, it's a good spread of talent. you don't get it on the mainstream news. Well, that's true. I mean, you and I started working together regularly on radio when we uh, when we started Melbourne Talk Radio back in 2002, which lasted mm. for two and a half years. And that's – we identified early on that you had to be a point of difference. There was no point trying to be another no. 3AW. I mean, and if we'd had more time, I suspect that that would have worked. Well, I think that's right, and well, which brings me to two uh, GB. You know, now uh, when I was there with you, there was there was you, there was me, there was Alan Jones, uh, Ray Hadley, uh, Chris Smith, uh, Michael McLaren. I think is a terrific talent. Now Michael's still there, but I think what very late at night. Midnight change. Midnight to dawn. Midnight. So I think that's wasted. My, Michael is Michael needs to come daytime, but 
the only Conservatives left there uh, at the primetime shift is the primetime day shift, uh, Monday to Friday. Uh, well, Ray Hadley, but Ray, I don't think, is a big brain, and I think he's all over the shop. And basically, I think he's an idiot, a loudmouth. But basically, you know, populist more than conservative. Um, who? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like, uh, what's his name that's taken over from Alan? Uh, ben Fordham. Ben Fordham. I like Ben. I, I think he's whip smart. Perhaps more just right a centre, but he's not going to going out there like Alan. And everyone else, I mean, uh, Jim Wilson uh, says that he, he wants people, at, when he's finished at 2GB, not to know which way he votes. And I think, oh, gee, th- this is 2GB talking now? They're all running so fast away from conservative opinion, so scared of advertisers of, of um, left-wing groups uh, monstering their their uh, advertisers that they're blanding out. Now, it might work commercially. I don't know, you know, that advertisers they might lose audience but they'll get more advertising. I don't know. But I think it's such a shame and a big gamble. Well, you and I uh, were regularly on a monthly basis. We had 800,000 people uh, individually downloading podcasts of that first hour of that show we did. I mean, what more evidence yeah, would yeah. anyone need to prove that the, the public have a thirst for that type of, uh, of, of radio performance? Look, it might be that they keep tuning in because what's the alternative? You're listening to the ABC, you know, what else are you going to do? So it might well work. As a commercial strategy, it may well work. But I think people have got to know this, you know, that the pressure of a tiny, tiny couple of activist groups backed by the ABC, which has been, you know, helping them, promoting them, uh, uh, linking uh, stories to them, feeding them suggestions or that, people like Annabelle Crabb or whatever, um, are trying to silence conservative voices on commercial media. And it's worked at 2GB in part because some advertisers freak at jump at shadows. They think a couple of people sitting in their underwear on a couch, people who aren't rich anyway, they wouldn't be buying their products. You really think some of these uh, people, you know, from Sleeping Giants buy anything? You know, seriously? Uh, they're, they're only a few, so they, they they freak. They withdraw their advertising from Alan Jones, and as a result, people are being robbed of what they would choose to listen to if it were made available. And I think that's so sad. And as a result, you're getting conversation shrunk. I want to steal a couple of opinions from you before we wrap up. Donald Trump, we both, uh, uh, when he was fighting to become president last time, said that he would win. Uh, we were criticised up and up and down by people who said we didn't know what we're talking about. He did win. Has he been a disappointment? Well, I didn't think he would win. You might, you did, but I didn't. Um, I think he's been a disappointment in the last few months. Uh, I think he's lost his nerve. Uh, I don't think he's handled the coronavirus rhetoric much. I mean, that said, he's been blamed for so much, which is just rubbish. I mean, even more so than in Australia. It's the the states there that are the various states, their, their governors and their, and their and their mayors and all that are called tune uh, and coronavirus response. It's not the president. Uh, that's even more so. That, and we see the same here, but 
less so, Victoria. You know, you blame Dan Andrews for, the, for that. Um, so he's getting a lot of media blame, but he could have handled some of the stuff better. But I think, whatever you might think of Donald Trump personally, I think he's done, it, it, never mind if the horse has got bad breath, it's where he takes you that counts. Uh, this it, what is done foreign policy, calling out China, trying to make uh, America less dependent on China, the way he's stuck up for Israel, the way he's uh, called out the United Nations, all that kind of stuff. It's great uh, what he's said about global warming. Great what he did about unemployment and, uh, and black unemployment in particular until the coronavirus hit. Fantastic. You know, what he did for the economy. Fantastic. But just forget about the style and the hysteria. There's a... Just see what he's doing for what he's actually doing. That's what counts. So I hope he wins, particularly given that I don't know Joe Biden. I've never met him. But Joe Biden's giving an excellent impression of a guy that's senile. You went out on your own in regard to uh, George Pell. Uh, how lonely was it when you were out there on your own? Well, it was really tough. It was, uh, it was tough. I mean, people calling me, they still do, um, a defender of pedophiles, which I think is just so extraordinary. I was a defender of an innocent man. And look at the High Court judgment, an innocent man. Spent 404 days in jail for a crime he could not possibly, looking at the evidence, could not possibly have committed. I just think for the media circus on that, to, to the pack attack, is disgusting, is disgraceful. I mean, you know, I was a kid, and I think you, you would have got this too. We learned at, at school Two seminal bits of literature, you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Stand Up for Justice for Someone that the Whole Town Wants to Hang, it was innocent, and never mind the price. You know, we thought that was great. And then there was 12 Angry Men, you know, where one person in a jury of 12, the other 11 want to go home, said, no, he's innocent. And they fight to fight and argue and argue until he triumphs. That's what I grew up in. And also the, uh, the Crucible. You know, Arthur Miller, where the witch hunt stuff, three books that were so important. And it looks like they have not been taught in schools, for all I can tell, to these journalists who jumped on an innocent man, ignored the evidence that he could not possibly have committed this crime, and, and, and jeered as he was in jail for all those, for more than a year. I thought it was incredible. What does it say? About our media today, honestly, I got no respect for the Australian media today. None, absolutely none. Well, it's an appropriate. I think it's a depraved profession, full of mountebanks and 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 group thinkers and sheep and vicious people with some with potty mouths and all that. You know, the stake abuse for argument. Really, Australia, you are so ill served by your media. We talk really grand stuff about you know standing up for, for ideals and all that. I tell you what, I wouldn't give a dime for, for six journalists in ten. Appropriate place to finish because the George Pell investigation had you going back to being what reporters were taught to do, and that's go out and find the facts. Andrew Bolt, as usual, been a great pleasure. It's always great to catch up with you, Steve. Can't wait to see where you next bob up on radio. But until then, we'll uh, make do with your podcast. And with your appearances on uh, Channel 10 and also, oh, yeah, you're with Eddie McGuire. Give (laughs) Eddie my uh, regard. That was Andrew Bolt, a warrior for conservative views. Keep an ear out for our next media personality to be featured on the record.